And after this hymn, Brother Alan Payne will lead us in prayer and read scripture. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, that scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is a radiance of God's glory an exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his power. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our holy and gracious Father in heaven, creator of all things, sustainer of life, Father, we we come before you in humble prayer this morning. Father, we confess that we are sinners, but we strive daily to do what's right. 
We pray with you be with our hearts and with our, our, our uh, minds and help us to always strive to do your will in all aspects of life. Father, we're so thankful for things you've blessed us with. We're thankful for our family and our friends and the, our fellow brothers and sisters here in this church and throughout the world. We're mostly, Father, thankful for your son Jesus who through and by him we can have eternal life and a home in heaven one day. So, Father, we thank you this day for all you've blessed us with. And, Father, we come before you this morning in supplication, Father, of asking you for some things to help us with. We pray that, Father, first off, you'd be the, with our members here who are ill. We pray that you would take care of them, Father, and comfort them and, and bless them and, and help them, Father, to be well. All the ones who have been on our list, we all have family and friends who are ill, Father. We pray that you would comfort them. And if it's your will, bring them back to, to good health. Father, we ask that you would be with our, our numbers here in this church. Help us all, Father, to always strive to love one another and to always strive to, to grow in our love towards you and to learn more about you day by day. Father, we pray that you'd be with those the brothers and sisters of our church who are not with us for this day for whatever reason. We pray that you would take care of them and bring them back with us when, it, when it's... Uh, when, you, when they can, we pray, we pray that you would just watch over the whole congregation here, Father. Father, again, we thank you so much for our nation. We ask you to please be with the rulers of this nation and the, the, the governors and all that we have. We pray that you would always make wise decisions and help this, station, help this nation to still strive to always do your will. Father, we thank you for our soldiers and overseas and even in the states here we pray that you would be with them and bless them father we we thank you for our children's and this in this congregation father we pray that you we pray that you would bless them father and help them to grow in spirit and knowledge and help them to become good servants for you as well again father we thank you so much for all you've blessed us with you we pray that you would be with our hearts and our minds as we as we continue to worship you this morning as we shortly hear partake of the Lord's Supper, help us to do so in a manner that's also pleasing in your sight. Father, we love you so much, and we always want to do your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Next hymn this morning, <clears throat> 495, 495, of the depth and the riches. The depth and the riches of God's saving grace, going down from the cross for me. There the death for my sins by the Savior was paid, in his suffering on Calvary. Oh, the death of such wonderful love, flowing down the sinful and free. And the Great from the bondage of sin, 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This morning we gather together here in remembrance and in celebration. We remember our Savior's death upon the cross. And we celebrate um, his uh, rising on the third day. And we celebrate our salvation that we are promised uh, through his sacrifice. This morning we gather together to break bread, to remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. Will you pray with me? Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we humbly bow before you this morning as we gather together in remembrance of the sacrifice of your Son upon the cross. Father, we are here broken by sin, and we remember your, father, your Son's body that was broken on the cross, the pain that he endured, the mental anguish, the blood that was shed. Father, we ask your blessing upon this bread, a token uh, that represents his broken body. We ask your blessing upon each of us who partake of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
we also have the fruit of the vine, which represents his shed of blood upon the cross. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your son's sacrifice. Father, for the life that he lived on earth, he lived as we live, tempted as we are tempted. Yet he was perfect, and he died for us. Father, we ask your blessing upon this fruit of the vine. We pray that you would bless each of us as we partake of it, that we will center our minds back on the cross and remember, Father, the sacrifice that was made and the blood that still flows cleansing us from our sins. Father, we're thankful for the salvation that we have as a result of that sacrifice. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Separate from our gathering together for the Lord's Supper, we have, are commanded to give back a portion in which we have been so richly blessed. Paul writes, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I was thinking yesterday, I've never been hungry. I've never, I've lived a whole life, and most of us, I think, can say that. We've never needed food to nourish our bodies. Um, maybe we think we have, but we, we really haven't. I've never been in need of a home I've always known at the end of the day that I'm going to have a place to, to sleep. I don't know what it feels like to not be free, as most of us here feel the same way. Yet so many in our world live every day uh, not knowing what freedom is. So we are so richly blessed, and now we have an opportunity to give back a portion which we have been given. Uh, there are bins in the back of the room uh, if you have a con contribution to make. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for what we have. Father, we know that all good things come from you. Father, we are indebted to you for, for what we have. Father, and, and even the blessings sometimes that we don't see. Father, we ask your blessing upon the leaders of our congregation here, that you will be with Jerry and Gary and Clinton, and that you will bless our newly appointed elders, Rick and Mike and Jeremy. We ask your blessing, Father, upon these six men, that you will watch over them, guide them, and that you will lead them, Father, and, and grant them the wisdom that they need to make the right decisions. Father, forgive us when we sin. And thank you for everything that, that you bless us with. In Jesus' name I pray.
Let's all please stand. We'll sing hymn number 532. 532. Praise him, praise him. <clears throat> this time the young children may go to the children's Bible hour. Praise him, praise him. Jesus our blessed Redeemer. Sing over his wonderful Things are ready. Hymn number 23, we'll sing the first three verses. Brother Chris. Good morning. It's good to see each one of you with us this morning. If you've got your Bibles, hope you do, be turning to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. We are starting today a brand new series in Hebrews. This book, I don't think, is a book. Like we talked about last week, I think it's probably a, a sermon uh, that's been written down. It reads more like a sermon, and there's some indications throughout this thing that looks like uh, it's probably a sermon, not a letter like the rest of the New Testament, which explains some things. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know who it was written to, and we don't know when it was written. 
But we've got some guesses uh, that will help us figure out what's going on with this letter. It's probably written to Hebrew people. Um, they are not living in Palestine. They are living outside in the Greek world somewhere. Uh, and they are struggling. I think this letter, this book, I think is going to help us fall back in love with Jesus. Uh, I think that's why it's written to them. I think that's what this original sermon was meant to do. I think it originally, uh, whoever preaches this sermon... Like we said, we don't know who preaches the sermon. We don't know who wrote it down, if that's actually how it went down. But this, these words that is recorded for us in Hebrews, I think the original person that spoke them or wrote them designed them to help their readers, their listeners, fall back in love with Jesus. We think it's probably written about 64 A.D., and so this, this book was written at the very onset of some pretty severe persecution. We know from the contents of the book that the, uh, the readers here have not yet withstood uh, to bloodshed yet. It's coming. Uh, they haven't bled for their faith yet, but that is not too far down the road. And in fact, if it's written in 64, 65 A.D., that's just months away. And so they are already uh, enduring some pretty significant persecution from their families, from their friends who are Jewish. Uh, and so these people are being tempted to come back. Just come back. Make some concessions. Make some compromises against Jesus. And everything can go back to normal. That's, that's, that's what's being, I think, uh, espoused against these people here. That's why Hebrews is written. It's written to say, don't. Don't, don't go back into that. Don't compromise. Don't make those concessions. Jesus is worth whatever you have to sacrifice to have him. And so in the first three verses this morning, that's all we're getting into this morning, uh, I wanted to open up with the first three verses because I think that they are so fundamentally powerful for this book. Uh, you'll find here just in the, uh, the Hebrew writer's opening words, one of the most eloquent uh, and thought-provoking texts. Just here in verse 1, he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's true, and it's poetic, and it's memorable, and it's powerful, isn't it? Uh, how many of us could quote Hebrews 1.1? 1, 1? It, it's one of the most beautiful sections of the New Testament. Our author, whoever he is, is quite um, eloquent. He's thoughtful. Um, and, and this opening here lends credence to that idea. And so let's look at what he's actually saying, though. Remember, don't read through this too quickly, uh, which is kind of funny coming from me who speaks and talks quickly. But I want to encourage you not to read through the Bible, any, any passage of Scripture, but certainly not Hebrews as we think about it this morning. Don't read it too quickly. You need to spend time with this text, spend time with, this, with these words. Let them sink de deep down inside of you so that you can, you can struggle with and meditate on what he's trying to get across here. Like we say, there are so many things that are being said in any passage of Scripture. And there's a, a several things that are being talked about here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. But just at the very outset, a very simple thing I want you to notice is... The author is saying, a long time ago, God spoke 
through prophets. And we're familiar with those guys, right? Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all the prophets of the Old Testament, including Daniel uh, and, and Hosea, the minor prophets and the major prophets and the ones who didn't even write anything like Elisha and Elijah. He's saying God spoke to his people through those folks. He gave his word to them and they spoke to the people for God. They told the people what God wanted from them. He's saying it's not like that anymore. We have something that's better now. And better is a word you're going to hear a lot from Hebrews because he's comparing the two Testaments. He's comparing Jesus to the Old Testament because the people that are reading this or are listening to it in the first place want to and are making these equivocations back into the old law. They're being pressured to go back. Because if you're Jewish, you're not being persecuted. Not in 64, not in 65 A.D. The Christians are the ones who are being persecuted in 64, 65 A.D. And they're being persecuted by their Jewish friends and family. They've lost money, no doubt. They've lost, if they owned a business, they've lost a lot of revenue. If they had family, which most of them probably would have had at least some sort of family, they've been ostracized, they've been shunned. Their own mother and father won't speak to them anymore. They've lost every kind of safety net that they, that they, can, that they would have had. And the church alone is now their safety net, which it's a pretty good safety net, right? But <clears throat> they're being forced back into Judaism, uh, at least seduced back into Judaism via this persecution. And the Hebrew writer says, don't buy it. Don't buy into that. Jesus is worth whatever sacrifice you have to make to keep him. In verse 2 he says, but in these last days, we're in the last days. Uh, it's kind of a common thing to think since COVID has popped up in this worldwide pandemic, are we in the last days? Yeah, we are. <laughs> 100%. Is Jesus going to go back soon? Yes, he is. They thought that back in the first century. We're still saying it today. We live in the last days. This is the last days. This is what it is. Do we know when he's going to come back? Nope. He didn't know. And he didn't tell us. So we don't know when he's going to come back. Are we living in the last days? Yes. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Son, right? Wow. God came in the flesh. And he spoke to us. Not only did he come, but he spoke. He had something to say. He revealed himself to us. This is incredible, right? So what these next little section is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. These seven descriptions of Jesus' person and his work. There are five descriptions of Jesus' person that the Hebrew writer is going to walk us through. Uh, his character. Who he is in his very essence. Right? Uh, I've encouraged you to buy those little scripture journal things. If you if you haven't yet, you still got time. Go purchase one. You can get them on Amazon. I think they're six bucks. You can get them on CBD.com, uh, Christian Book Distributors. Distributors. <laughs> there we go. Talking too quick again. ChristianBookDistributors.com. I think they're like four bucks there uh, for each individual book of the Bible. Go purchase Hebrews and write in it. Fill that book up. Uh, if, uh, if not. Feel free to, to write in your, in your scriptures if, if you uh, want to do that. But I'm going to tell you to underline some things today. The first thing I want you to underline is heir, whom he appointed in verse 2, whom he appointed the heir of all things. God appointed Jesus as the heir. What, what's, what's it mean to be an heir? Well, 
if you have older relatives and they've passed away, maybe they left some things to you and you became the, the heir of their estate. That's not so much what, what the Hebrew writer is trying to get across here. He's, he's more looking at the taking possession of the inheritance, um, that, that aspect uh, of, of an inheritance. And so you've got to think, well, what did Jesus take control of? What did he take possession of? It's an interesting question, right? If you think back with me, all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis 1, God looked at Adam and he said, you've got a job. Your job is to have dominion over all the world, to govern the entire world, to have control over the entire world, right? That happened pre-fall, before Adam and Eve's sin. God says, you've got dominion. Your job, Adam, is to have dominion over the entire world. But then Adam and Eve sinned. And that job didn't happen. It wasn't fulfilled. Man doesn't have dominion over everything. There's, there's, in some respects, chaos. And so Adam and Eve, mankind, doesn't have dominion anymore. But then in Genesis 12, when God approaches Abraham, do you remember the promise that he makes to Abraham? On Sunday nights, we're going through some of these Old Testament patriarchs following Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, telling these stories. A couple weeks ago, we told the story of Abraham. As you meet him in Genesis chapter 12, God meets this man. He's 75 years old, and he says, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and I'm going to give you a land. Uh, We know the land is Canaan, and we know the nation as Israel, but what I want you to focus on there is the nation. He gave Adam's promise to Abraham, and it became one nation that, that he's going to have governance of. He's going to have dominion over. And then finally, flip over to uh, Psalms chapter 2. I think this is just such an important psalm. I want you to see it. We talked about it a couple of months ago in our series on psalms. Uh, this psalm is just so incredible. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. <clears throat> he transfers it again. He transfers this dominion, this idea of ruling and governance again. Uh, it's, it's, there's coming a day, he's saying in Psalm 2, when Abraham and the Jewish nation will not be the rulers. They won't, they won't be providing the governance. The dominion will, will be taken from them and it will be given to someone else. Psalm 2.8 talks about that someone else. Ask of me and I will make the nations your, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Who's he talking to in Psalm 2? Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the Messiah. And so <clears throat> the, the dominion, the governance over the, the nations, the right to rule, went from Adam, who was not faithful. And so he lost that right. And it went to Abraham, but his children weren't faithful. And so they lost that right. And then it went to Israel's king, But even David, Israel's greatest king, wasn't faithful. Not in every respect. And so it was taken from him. And it was given to someone who would always be faithful. To Jesus the King. To Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The inheritance, the thing that he has, that he is the heir of, is this idea of the right 
to rule. He is in charge. He is sovereign. That's a concept we're pretty familiar with throughout the rest of the New Testament. But the Hebrew writer here puts it poetically for us. He has appointed, God has appointed Jesus as the heir of all things. He has given him the right to rule. Everything is at his feet. To a people who are concerned about their lives and about their livelihood and about their families and their future, serving one who is in control of the world had to mean everything to them. Nothing happens without his say-so. He is in 100% control. And so to these folks who are struggling, I mean, they're, if, if they're holding on, it's by a hair. They're just, they're just, every day is a brand new torture. Every day is a brand new opportunity to portray the one that they have aligned themselves with. Every day, something new. Beginning to sound a little familiar? Are you beginning to feel why Hebrews is such an important book for us to study? I think a lot of us are in the exact same position. We're not wanting to go back into Judaism. We see the foolishness of that. We're wanting to go back into the world. And somehow we don't see the foolishness of that. Right? We, we're willing to make compromises and concessions not toward Judaism, but toward a lack of devotion, toward a lack of passion. Are you as passionate right now for Christ as you were three years ago before COVID hit? I would imagine not, right? It, it's taken its toll. The, the quarantine and the, the, the pulling back from services and, and the pulling back from activities and not being able to be around each other, there's power there, isn't there? There's something about meeting in person and being able to, to see people, even if you don't touch them, <laughs> even if you don't, you don't hug them and shake their hands. There's power about being present with God's people in his house, right? If you're not here, you lose some of that, don't you? And, and there are obviously extenuating circumstances where that makes sense, where you can, where you can miss on occasion uh, for a temporary time. But let's not make that a forever thing because we need to be here or we start losing our passion and our fervor, don't we? I think what the Hebrew writer is trying to tell his people is Jesus is the one who's in control. It may look like the Jews are in control because they can make life miserable for you. They can make life so, so hard for you. And in just a few short months, I think, if, if I'm right about this being in 64, 65 A.D., the Romans are about to make it very, very, very difficult to be a Christian. And the Hebrew writer is saying, all that's coming, but Jesus is 100% in charge. He's in control. He's the heir of all things. God has given him the right to rule. He's passed it down to all these other folks who were not faithful, but he's finally given it to someone who will be faithful. Faithful to righteousness. Faithful to do what God wants him to do. He will do what's right. And so Jesus has the right to rule now. And that's a comfort to people who are just holding on with everything that they've got. So underline, 
heir of all things. Second thing you need to underline is through whom he also created. That word created, underline created. He is the creator. Sometimes we want to think of, uh, and maybe rightly so, uh, the, the Godhead as a, as a trinity, the trinity forming and fashioning the world. But I think what the Hebrew writer is telling us here is that when, if you were to st- If you were to stand on the horizon as a voice said, let there be light, that would be Jesus' voice. The pre-incarnate Christ is the one who created the world. It's Him. He is the Creator. And that power, that kind of creative power, will not be subject to anyone. You cannot wrangle that kind of power. He is Incredible. In fact, in John, turn back over to John chapter 1. John paints this exact same picture for us. And you'll find that in the book of Hebrews. Uh, he's making references, references back to other parts of the Old and New Testament. He's famous, the Hebrew writer is, for making references to the Old Testament, especially to the book of Leviticus and the Old Testament law. But if you're paying attention, he'll do it throughout the New Testament as well. He'll make references back to the New Testament. And this is one section where it's just, there's a connection here between the Hebrew writer saying, Jesus is the creator, uh, and John 1, verse 1. Listen to what he says here in John 1, 1. In the beginning. You remember those words from Genesis 1, right? And John's actually going to take you pre-Genesis 1. What was going on before Genesis 1, before God spoke light, Into the darkness. What was going on? Well, John's going to tell you what was going on, in case you were interested. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, who's the Word? Well, in in verse 14, he tells us that the Word became flesh, and He came and dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus, and so here He is. In the very beginning, He is God, and He's with God. In verse 2, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. All things were made through him. And in case you didn't catch it, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's the creator. All things were made through Christ. So if you believe that John, the Hebrews writer, who claimed that Jesus is the creator, and you're wondering if Jesus is worth all the sacrifices you've made for him, you have to look no further. If he's the creator, then he is beyond capable of keeping any promises he's made to you. And he's made a lot through scripture. He's made an awful lot of promises that we depend on, doesn't he? Is he capable of fulfilling those promises? Well, Paul in 1 Timothy would say that he's given him his soul. And he knows he's capable of holding it all the way until the day of judgment. Paul says, I've entrusted my most precious commodity to you. The thing that I, I couldn't entrust to anyone else, the thing that, that, that is worth of more value than anything else I could possibly have. It's worth more than this flesh because the flesh, newsflash, is going to die anyhow. Even if I were to, uh, to, to, to uh, betray Christ and to, to, uh, to make these concessions and these compromises that my Jewish friends and family want to make. A body's going to die anyhow someday. I don't get out of this life without it, right? And so he says, 
This thing's even more important than my flesh. It's my soul. And I've entrusted it to him because I know he's capable of coming through for me. He's the creator. And so to a beleaguered and persecuted people, the fact that Jesus is the creator, I can trust that kind of power and I can rely on that kind of power because he has more power than these people over here who are hurting me could ever possibly dream of. And he's also promised me that they're going to be judged for what they do to me. Throughout Scripture, you find God saying he does not like it when his church is persecuted. And in fact, he will always, always, always judge the ones who persecute his church. There will always be a day of vengeance, always be a day of judgment for those people. And it will come quickly and it will be severe. So he is the creator and he is going to make good on all of his promises. He's also, notice in verse 3, the radiance of the glory of God. That's kind of a really beautiful phrase, isn't it? But what's it mean? Again, we read through some of these phrases very quickly and we don't always stop to think about what it means. Have you ever looked up at the sky and seen through the clouds beams of light coming through? We have, right? That's, that's kind of what he's saying. But he's saying that God's the Son. The Father is the Son. I know it's kind of confusing, isn't it? The Father is that, I don't know how to say it, is the Son. And Jesus is the beams of light that are shooting out through the clouds. So are they the same thing? Yes. Yes, they're the exact same thing. He says it in a different way uh, in the rest of verse 3. Uh, so underline this little section 2. He's the exact imprint of of his nature, the exact imprint of God the Father's nature. Jesus is, is the stamp. You remember those old, old, you ever got an old letter uh, or maybe like a wedding invitation is where we see it mostly today, but somebody will put a, a thing, a, a, dop, um, a drop of wax on the envelope and then they'll put their, their new initial, a stamp with their new initial on it. And you, t- you turn it over and look at the stamp and it, it has that, like ours was an F. And then you look on the, on the envelope and it's got that same F right there. It's the exact imprint, isn't it? The Hebrew writer says, whatever you see in God, whatever makes him, whatever makes him deity, Jesus has that in the exact same measure as the Father. He is God. He's 100% deity. And so to, again, a persecuted people who are considering going back to Judaism, the Hebrew author throws a wall right in their way, doesn't he? The carpenter from Nazareth who died via crucifixion just a few decades ago is God wholly and completely. God has done something new in Jesus. And Judaism may be physically safe, maybe physically safe, but you might, you might not get persecuted there, but otherwise, it's a dead-end road. God's done with Judaism, and now we'll only have a relationship with those who sacrifice for Jesus. Sacrifice. It's at the very center of this book. It's not just the priestly sacrifices. It's not just the, the, the sacrifices that they're going to make, the, the physical sacrifices where they kill bulls and goats. And he's not just saying that those 
are antiquated and that those, that those are less than what's capable in Jesus. He's saying you have to sacrifice. He's saying exactly what Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when he says, your life is a sacrifice. You put your altar, you, you put your life on the altar of burnt offering and you offer it up to God. That's what he's demanding. That's what he's saying is, is possible and true in Christianity. And to, to quote Romans 12, 1 and 2, when Paul says, it's a reasonable service. It's your reasonable worship is what some translations say. But the word there is service. This is a reasonable thing to do. It's a logical thing to do. When you look at what Jesus has done and when you count the cost... When you count the cost, he says, this is the only thing that makes sense. Obedience to him, sacrifice to him, even if it demands your life, even if it demands everything, even if it demands you continue living and making horrendous sacrifices for the rest of your life every day. He says, it's worth it. And it's the logical thing to do once you count the cost. These folks are counting the cost, aren't they? Every single day they're counting the cost. And slowly but surely, atrophy is taking place. They're thinking every day, I don't know if it's worth it anymore. And Tuesday, uh, I think it might not be worth it anymore. And then somebody comes along and they teach this lesson to these people. And they start singing, or they start saying, thinking, he's appointed him heir. Of all, he has the right to rule, and he's in charge. He's sovereign. He's also the creator. Who can who can fathom that kind of power? Much less come up against it. He's also the radiant radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He is God. He's deity, one hundred percent. If you're a Jewish person, and you find yourself to be as as Jesus himself would put it. To Paul, kicking against the goads, right? If you're trying to re, rebut God, if you're trying to, to, to come against him, to fight against him, as a Jewish person, you would think, oh, that's insanity. I would never do that. He's going to win because he's God. That's exactly the situation. The Hebrew writer is trying to put his Jewish readers in. You're fighting against God. You're in his camp now, but you're thinking about leaving? Why? He is deity. Whatever you're sacrificing for now, whatever the cost is right now, it's worth keeping him for. Whatever you have to sacrifice. There's a couple more that you just you have to see these last two. So let's do one more the 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 fifth term that he uses to talk about Jesus's character uh, is he's the sustainer he literally holds everything together you find that with this word he upholds the universe he is the sustainer uh, Paul would put it like this in Colossians he says that he holds everything together right in him all things are held together and so you want to know why the earth is tilted at a 23 and a half degree axis and it doesn't just tip over at some point? Because Jesus is holding it up there. You want to know why the waves don't overpower the, uh, the, the earth and just we have a whole 
big ocean on the earth because Jesus isn't let, letting them. In fact, there's a psalm that says that God set the boundaries of the ocean. He said, you'll go this farther and no farther. It's in Job. Um, 31, uh, 38 verse 11. Uh, and so he is sustaining. He's holding everything together. He's 100% in charge of everything. But he's not so preoccupied with his, his, his obligations there that he can't hear you. That he's not concerned about you. Listen to these last two. As he, he shifts, the Hebrew writer shifts from talking about Jesus' character, like who he is in his essence, to what he's doing. He's got a job. And so what's he doing? Well, the last two things are what he's doing. After making purifications for sins, he sat down. Let's, let's just read the whole thing, and we'll talk about it in just a second. At the right, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So there you find these twin concepts that the Hebrew writer is going to come back to time and time again throughout his letter. And in fact, he builds his argument on these two premises. He's introducing them to us here at the very outset of his letter because the entire letter is going to be about these two concepts. Sacrifice and majesty. So he is the priest and he's also the king. So underline making purifications for sins. You don't see the priestly term here, but you find the activity, right? And it's the same way with king. You don't find the, the king term put there, but you find the activity. And so these are some of Jesus' jobs. These are two of Jesus' jobs. He is a priest. He makes purification for sins. But it wasn't a continual thing. It's not an, a thing that he has to do every year. You remember under the Old Testament law, <clears throat> I actually thought about doing all of Hebrews chapter 1 today, so be glad. <laughs> I didn't do that. I am. I don't think I can talk much faster. So Hebrew, uh, he talks about making purifications for sins. And under the Old Testament law, the uh, Old Testament high priest had to come into the most holy place every year. And his job was to make purification for sins. His own sins and the sins of the people, right? And then every day for the next 364 days, they would have sin offerings, uh, trespass offerings, as well as a variety of other offerings, sacrifices. And then the next year would come the next day and they would make the Day of Atonement one time every year. It comes up every single year, and it, he's just never done. Why? Because it's an imperfect system, because he's an imperfect priest. But Jesus comes one time, and he makes purification for sins at an incredibly costly cost. What you need to focus on here is the purification uh, for sins. And then he sat down. It's not just that uh, he made purification. It's not just that it was a one-time deal, but now he's, he's done. Um, this, uh, this idea of purification, he makes us clean by a sacrifice. No other sacrifice could have possibly done the job. Uh, the readers of, the, of Hebrews would have been intimately acquainted with this Old Testament, Old Testament sacrifice, sacrificial system. Um, they would have known since childhood the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin, but that they were just a stopgap 
waiting for the perfect sacrifice to make its way to the cross. And in case they were thinking about returning to that Old Testament sacrifice, the author says Jesus made purification for sins. He did it one time, and it was done. And so any other sacrificial system that you try to go back to is empty. There's nothing there, just violence. The final thing I want you to see is he's king. Uh, he sat down at the right hand of majesty. Who sits down next to majesty? Royalty. Kings sit down at the right hand of majesty. And that's who the uh, Hebrew writer says Jesus is. So not only is Jesus, uh, his work of purification finished, he, he sat down, but he's also the king. He's got every bit of authority the father has. He is 100% in charge um, this is the element of Jesus' work the author's been building up to. There are, you're, you're not going to find the five characteristics of his person in the rest of Hebrews. You'll find them alluded to every now and then, but most of the time they're not alluded to at all. These last two, though, he talks about them all the time. Every time he, come, he keeps on coming back to these two concepts of priest purification and sin, sacrifice and reigning, sacrifice and exaltation. He's not just saying, he's not just talking about the sacrifices, like the physical sacrifices. He's talking about if you sacrifice, you will be exalted. You see that? It's really incredible, right? And so he's saying, Jesus sacrificed and he was exalted. You'll get the exact same thing if you do what Jesus did. If you sacrifice for God, he will not overlook you. He will exalt you. It's incredible, right? And so just in these first three or four verses, the Hebrew writer has, has blessed us as we try to fall back in love with Jesus, as we understand who he is and what he has done in our lives. The power is incredible. And he says it's not a good deal to go back if you're thinking about returning back to that old covenant, he says it's not logical. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense not to sacrifice for him. And so today, if you're feeling a little burned out, if you're feeling a little pressed, if you're feeling a little uh, far away, he says it's not a good deal. It's not a logical step to walk away from him. The only logical thing is to get as close to him as you possibly can and rest in him. Are bad things still going to happen to you? Yes, right? They happen to the Hebrew to the Hebrew author and they have uh, to the Hebrew writers. Wow. They happen to the Hebrew readers. Uh, persecution's coming, right? So bad things are going to still happen. But if you're close to him, it doesn't really matter. Cuz he's going to be faithful and he's 100% in charge. And if you sacrifice for God, he will exalt you. So this morning, are you willing to sacrifice? Have you already given your life to Christ? If you haven't already made that step, we want to aid you in that. Be baptized. Have your sins washed away. Become a part of his kingdom and be ready and willing to make these sacrifices for him so that he can exalt you in due time. Maybe you've already made that decision this morning and you need the prayers of this congregation to be pleasing to him to make those sacrifices so that he can exalt you. Whatever you need this morning, why don't you come as we stand and sing.
I'd like to read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you'd like to follow along. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires a position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospital, able to teach. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house... How will he take care of the church of God? Not a novelist, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Two weeks ago today, the elders presented three men to 
to the congregation for appointment as elders for the church here at Rome. Rick Keister, Jeremy Miller, Mike Williams. We, Gary, Clinton, and I, set today for the appointment of these men. We have received no information or reason that these men should not be appointed as elders of the Roman Church of Christ. We have received positive and approving remarks. I'd now like to ask Rick Keister and his wife Karen to stand. Jeremy Miller and his wife Connie. Mike Williams. And his wife Kelly. <laughs> Give me a second one on that one. It's been a while coming. Y'all can sit down now. <laughs> but we've used the excuse of COVID, and it's really not an excuse. But as times change, and as Chris's lessons and the things that we've learned, and with the decisions that we have to make and it's very easily to make decisions and having ours first but as Gary and Clinton and I were talking to these three men this appointment will change you What is more important what's more important than a person's soul? Not their life, not anything else. If we lose our soul, we've lost it all. Period. The decisions that are made will carry on for the next 20, possibly 25, 30 years that's been made this past month, two weeks, six months. As leaders of the congregation, we plan ahead. And with, as Clinton tells Gary and I, you two boys, because we tease him about being the oldest of the group. I told you two boys, he looks at me and Gary, but as we here today have men from Mike and Jeremy and Rick and Gary and Clinton and myself, different ages, but the decisions that are made will carry on for the next 20 years.
Gary made a comment at the beginning about to always say something about keeping the church pure. It has to be pure. We can't go off to left field. How I feel is what scriptures teach me to feel. That's the thing. My dad taught me to remember. Keep it pure. I'm sorry. We ask for your prayers as we lead the Lord's church here at Rome in the future. We will have a closing prayer, and Brother Gary is going to lead that in that closing prayer. Then we'll be dismissed. Before we pray, I want to read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, and then I'll skip down and read verse 8. Starts out, says, Christian service in view of the chief shepherd. Said, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but by willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither being as lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And then we are told to watch be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, all of our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Pray with me, please. Father, we do thank you so much for this day, for this morning, Father, this special morning that uh, these men have been appointed elders to uh, serve here at Rome. Father, we're thankful for these men, and we're thankful for their wives, and, and Father, for their desire to, to serve you and their desire to lead. And, and Father, they know uh, the importance of this position. We have met with them and talked with them, and, and we know they love the church here at Rome, and they love their brothers and sisters, but, but God, they love you. They love you, and they, they, they are thankful for what you have given them and, and what you've done for all of us by sending your son. Father, we pray now that, that you will bless this congregation, Father. Bless us all as, as we work together. And, and Father, this time of, of the virus, the strain that uh, it has put on, put on your church, uh, Father, we have much work to do, and, and we welcome these men to help us. And, and Father, we just uh, pray that... Uh, that we will do everything that we can, that we will always do your will and our wills to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
got feedback now? Check the tablet. Look at the tablet. You, get, you getting pickups? 